Back in the day, the great classical composers were also brilliant improvisers. Are they still? Is it even possible? We're about to find out. First this. Hi, it's Peter Saltzman. You're listening to Improvisations on the Ledge. If you're enjoying this podcast with its unique blend of piano and verbal improvisation, please subscribe, give it five stars, and write a verbose review with lots of big words. On to the show. Improvisation in classical music. What is that? By chance, I started improvising on a theme which I recognized as being the second theme from Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata. I'm not sure of the number. If you're looking for numbers in the Sonata catalog of Beethoven, you just look up Waldstein and find somebody who plays it well, not me. It starts like this. second theme, the one I was just improvising on. Something like that. Anyway, I started to play that 
and to improvise on it, partly because I don't really remember how it goes. I'm not a full-fledged or even perhaps half-fledged classical pianist. I studied that music intensely and intently for many years. And when I say studied, I don't just mean played. I studied and analyzed how it worked, how those great works, not just the piano music, but the symphonies and string quartets and even opera, not so much. Piano concertos, violin concertos, piano trios. Am I leaving anything out? Chamber music in general. So I studied it, learned about how it was put together, how it worked. And I played a lot of what's called classical music from Bach to Mozart and Beethoven, Schumann, Schubert, 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 Schubert is, I believe, a shoe store. No, that's Schumart. Studied all that up through the so-called classical era, through the Romantics, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Wagner, Bruckner, through the Impressionists, Debussy, Ravel, through the Modernists, including Stravinsky, Bartok, Schoenberg, and even later Modernists, Varese, Schopenhauer. I was going to say Schopenhauer. He was a philosopher, right? I don't know. Stockhausen. And more, although as it got later into the 50s, 60s, 70s, I started, you know, eventually. I didn't really study it. I listened to it and acknowledged it existed and then uh, stopped listening to it because it didn't really appeal to me. And then, of course, the minimalists, which I spoke about in the last episode, So there's this entire sweep of what's called classical music or European art music or the concert music tradition or whatever it's called. As I said in the last episode, contemporary classical music is sometimes called new music, which is very pretentious, and so on. The main body of what I studied was probably from Bach through the early part of the 20th century. And, of course, I learned a great deal from it. And one of the things I learned along the way, having simultaneously or maybe a little bit later being bitten by the jazz bug and studying that entire tradition, which had its focus, of course, on improvisation. But one of the things I learned about the so-called classical tradition is that improvisation played an important role, a vital role in that tradition as well, that composers like Bach and Beethoven, Mozart were brilliant improvisers. Bach could improvise multi-voice fugues, complex contrapuntal pieces. Beethoven could improvise piano sonatas that, according to his contemporaries who heard them, rivaled or surpassed his written sonatas. Now, we'll never know if this is actually the case. Of course, something being created in the moment has the virtue of being created in the moment. It's exciting. It's happening right there. Whether or not in retrospect you would go back and say, eh, it's not so good. I kind of doubt that we would have that reaction. Beethoven was a great improviser. We know this. And this goes on throughout the tradition up through and including the great Impressionist piano composers, Debussy and Ravel. Somewhat later, as we get into the serialist school, that is the 12-tone school founded by the trichodecaphobist Schoenberg, yes, he feared the number 13, improvisation practically disappeared. 
And it certainly disappeared from most modern performances of the thing we call classical music. That is, for example, piano concertos, Mozart piano concertos. Let's use that as an example. Mozart would improvise the cadenzas, the free passages at the end, particularly of the first movements. And those improvisations would be normally based on the themes of the movement itself. This is rarely done in the contemporary world. And it's, it's kind of an oddity when you think about it. If, say, a great classical pianist was playing a Mozart concerto, piano concerto, and he got to the cadenza part and he started improvising on the themes of that first movement, would he or she improvise in a Mozartian style? That is, effectively ignore the entire history of music after that, which is kind of a strange thing. If you're creating in the moment, which is what improvising is, by definition, I guess, and you then basically put a screen between the late 18th century and everything that happened after it, just block it out, is that really improvising? And one would have to ask, what's the point? You might as well play the written cadenzas that either Mozart or somebody else later from that period wrote. For example, if I'm playing a Mozart sonata, and I I can't just call up the concertos, never played them and studied them too many years ago, but say everyone knows this. Well, not everyone. Donald Trump doesn't know it. So say I were to decide, I'm going to improvise on these themes. Now, there's two ways to approach this. I ignore the last 250-odd years or incorporate them. So let's do the first. So that more or less fits within the style of the piano sonata in C major, whatever the number is. I think it's 15. Now, it feels more or less idiomatically correct, but I also have to, along the way, it's kind of funny, I'm thinking of going to a certain chord or scale or something and I, I can't go there. Why? Because it's not in the style of Mozart in around 1770s, 80s, whenever. So let's try it the other way.
What's interesting is that either way feels maybe a little forced. In the case of the first version where I purposely cut off musical history after Mozart's time, I felt I had to edit myself to keep the harmonic structures, the kinds of things that Mozart would do, and cut out anything either before, actually, or after. The before is a little easier because Mozart, of course, had absorbed the before. He clearly didn't absorb the after, but I have. So that felt a little weird. But then going the other way, adding kind of modern or bluesy or American elements to this very classical German style or Italian style felt forced on the other side. So getting back to the original point, improvisation in classical music. What is it? What is it historically and what is it now? Historically, it's just what those guys did back then. They improvised. They made things up on the spot using the musical language of their time that they were familiar with, that they mastered. And it would sound, from our ears, if we were listening to it, it would sound, if it was Mozart improvising, it would sound like Mozart. If it was Beethoven, Beethoven. If it was Debussy, Debussy, and so on. You wouldn't wonder who the hell is this improvising. They weren't all of a sudden going to break into boogie-woogie or modal jazz. All right? It didn't exist. The world didn't exist. You wouldn't, for example, hear uh, Schubert or Schubert do a riff on Mozart's sonata along these lines. I hope not. God, I hope not. Moving forward a couple hundred plus years, what would it mean in contemporary classical or new music? The problem with this idea is there is no single musical language in that world that people are speaking. So it's really an individual thing. And I guess that's no different than what was going on back then, although there was more of a common musical language being spoken in Vienna, for example, in the 1780s. Haydn, Beethoven, Mozart all knew the language and many, many others who weren't quite as good or not nearly as good, but they all spoke it. They used the same basic harmonic language, the same musical forms to put their ideas into or develop their ideas. And one could say the same thing in entire jazz history. There were disruptors along the way, just as Beethoven disrupted the order of classicism. There were people like Charlie Parker in the bebop era who advanced the musical language in the jazz scene, but he was still doing that within the framework of what everyone around him, whether that was... The older guys, like Louis Armstrong, who called, bizarrely, called um, bebop Chinese music. I don't even know what that means. I don't think he knew what it meant. But he was, in his time, of course, was a great disruptor and improviser. But you could still put Charlie Parker and Louis Armstrong on the same stage 
and they would be working in the same basic framework of chord changes, tunes, structure, blues-influenced or blues-infused music. You could put Louis Armstrong and John Coltrane on the same stage, and it would there would still be a connection. It would be more distant, but it would be there. There is a recording of Coltrane with Duke Ellington, an album. Ellington, partly perhaps to stay relevant, wanted to record with one of the great acknowledged musical modernists of his time in the jazz world. And maybe he also just felt a deep connection between his era and what Coltrane was doing at the time, which is maybe early 60s. But there was still a common framework. Ellington could sit down at the piano, Coltrane could be at, on soprano or, or tenor, and they could play the same tunes and understood the framework, the common language that they spoke, even if Coltrane had advanced the language. Advanced is not the right word, but added to it, added new harmonic and rhythmic and melodic elements that weren't necessarily prevalent in Ellington's music. My point is, of course, they were speaking the basic same language. At a certain point, it can break down. Cecil Taylor, who I spoke about several episodes ago, put him on a stage with Louis Armstrong. I don't know. Cecil would be sounding like something like this. of Cecil Taylor, and Louis Armstrong may be sounding, well, I'm not playing trumpet. How do those two mix? Well, clearly it would be Cecil who would have to accommodate Louis Armstrong, right? Cecil knew the language. He knew the history of African-American music. He knew jazz. Go listen to his earliest records. You're it's clear that he knew where he was coming from. But if they were to both stay in their lanes on the streets they were used to playing, it would be an awkward match, but perhaps interesting because of that. So I've gone pretty far afield of improvisation within the classical tradition. What can you do with this in a contemporary context if there's no common musical language? Well, some will claim that the minimalists, like Steve Reich, Steve, did I say Reich? Uh, He's not German. Steve Reich, Philip Glass. I think both of those gentlemen can improvise. That's a more common musical language in that it uses common chords, harmonies. So if if you could put, and maybe it's happened, uh, Steve and Philip on the same stage, they could improvise together in a common language. I would think they could. And if you had different instruments involved, there's no reason to think that they couldn't. Or somebody like John Cage who used elements of chance and improvisation in his music. I've heard bands 
use his concepts and improvise with it. So there is that. But in terms of a more universally spoken language that most musicians could improvise within, that doesn't really exist in what we call classical music. It's a choice. You decide to be aligned somewhat with one camp or the other. I've even heard of musicians, jazz musicians, using the 12-tone serial technique of Schoenberg to uh, improvise in. I don't know what that sounds like. Probably much like the written stuff, but with jazz grooves. The possibilities and the choices are endless, but what's missing, of course, is a common language. Is this a good or a bad thing? If you were to look at it biblically, the story of the Tower of Babel, where nobody understood each other, which was supposedly God's way of keeping people from conspiring to do awful things, you would say it's a good thing. But that's just a metaphor, right? What is wrong with the idea of a common language which we could all speak? I mean, I can get together with almost any jazz, blues, even folk musician, and we could just start playing. So if somebody just started playing randomly... So clearly, any of us brought up on rock, jazz, blues, folk, and so on, the kind of foundations of American music, I could get together with just about anybody, regardless of their competency. If they were bad or only knew a few things, I could still work with them. I may not like it for more than like 30 seconds, but I could do it. The point is, we can speak a common language. Now, I have a question for classical musicians or people who call themselves that. I know that some of these can improvise fluently. I used to teach piano theory and uh, music technology at Columbia College in Chicago, and I was on the piano faculty there. And I remember the head of the department, Sebastian Hutz, talking about in one of our meetings how he encouraged his students, and he was like, he is a straightforward, what we would call classical pianist. He plays the standard literature, he composes as well, but he prides himself on being able to improvise, which is great. And he works with his students and encourages them and teaches them methodologies, I suppose, so that, for example, if you're playing, or if one of his students is playing a Mozart sonata and gets lost, has a memory lapse, she forgets what comes next. Well, with the proper skill in a performance, that pianist should be able to continue on using improvisational skills because they know the harmony, they know the scales, they know the idiom. So that's one thing. But what, let me ask you classical musicians, what would you do if you got together as a group? Say a bassoonist, a French horn player, flute player, pianist, cello, and that's it. If you were in this situation, we have no written music in front of us, we have to perform, what would you do? Well, let's make the assumption that these are all top-flight musicians. They know not only how to play their instruments, but they know the harmonic language, they understand how it works, how chord progressions work, form, and so on. I'm not trying to be difficult here, I'm asking what would you do? Well, you can email me using the links below and tell me. But would you say, for example, let's improvise in a style of Debussy? So you use the harmonic language and 
figures that Debussy would use, perhaps. That's not really Debussy, but the idea is there. This would be in an ensemble setting, almost impossible, because even with Debussy, the idea of group improvisation would be prohibitive because group improvisation is usually based on one of two things. A, a preset tune or structure like the blues or all the things you are or proud Mary or whatever. But everybody in that setting either knows the chord changes or they have a chord chart in front of them and they could follow along. There's a structure there. Option B in a group setting would be free improvisation in which there's no preset structure. Now, in an ensemble of classical musicians or classically trained musicians, but those who have a knowledge of harmony and so on, That could happen if they know enough about the so-called rules of free improvisation. They would have to know enough about modern harmony, things like fourths. They would have to know more contemporary rhythms that, you know, may be asymmetrical, time signatures, 
in theory, people can get caught up in the energy and start adding their parts. But lacking a knowledge of more advanced harmony, it would just be sonic chaos, right? So what's the point of all this? The point is, brothers and sisters in the classical musical world, go learn some tunes. Go learn the blues. Or if you really want to stay in the 19th and 18th centuries, then stay there. Learn how to improvise on Beethoven themes, like I did at the beginning. Actually, not like I did at the beginning. That was clearly not in a 19th century style. But the point is, for beyond free improvisation, which, believe it or not, requires a great deal of discipline, knowledge of harmony and rhythm and so on, beyond that, you have no other means of improvising than a preset structure, a tune. You cannot... I'm thinking improvise a group sonata with complex sections and chord changes. It just doesn't work. So it's free or tunes. Take your pick. Or just play solo like me, and then you could do whatever the hell you want. And speaking of doing whatever the hell I want, which is what this show is really about... I'm going to close with an improvisation on both the Beethoven and Mozart themes and see if they can be mixed together in some meaningful way.
Hey, it's me, Peter Saltzman, again. I mean, who else? Stay tuned for the next episode of Improvisations on the Ledge, which you'll be gently notified about if you subscribe. And if you love the music, you can hear a ton more on my Bandcamp page, petersaltzman.bandcamp.com, where you can also subscribe and get access to exclusive content, including all the music from these podcasts, not to mention all the non-piano music, like my one-minute songs. And if you want to support my work directly, please check out my newly launched Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash petersaltzman. Finally, be sure to check out my main website, petersaltzman.com, for all the latest. But don't worry, all of these links are in the notes below. Thanks for listening.